Well, it's my privilege uh, to be able to bring God's word for you today. And before we get into our text, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you ever struggle with the goodness of God? Do you ever doubt whether God is really good? And maybe for you, maybe right away you go, no, I, I'm good with that. I, I, I don't struggle with that. But I want you to think about it a little bit more because I don't think it's quite as easy as we think. It's easy to say we believe that God is good, but it's very more difficult when things in life aren't good to struggle with God's goodness. So do you believe that God is good even though when you go through great trials? Uh, when you're given uh, a sickness? When something bad happens in your life? When life seems unfair? Do you believe God is good even in that? Do you believe God's good when criminals are set free and, and those who are innocent are, are punished and jailed? Do you believe God is good when you see ungodly people rise to places of position and wealth and influence? Is it right when you see Hollywood actors and, and politicians and famous singers have so much power and money? And yet you see pastors and missionaries and churches struggling just because there's not enough money to, to continue on in ministry. How can God be good? How can he be righteous when, when Christians are mistreated and persecuted and those who put them to death live in luxury? When you see all these things happen to you or happen to other people, do you doubt whether God is good? If you have, and I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, have struggled with God's goodness at one point in our life, you're not alone. Many people struggle with it. And in fact, as we look in the scriptures, we see people, godly people, struggling with God's goodness in their lives. When you look in the book of Job, the book of Job is interesting because Job's friends are, are coming to Job. Job lost everything he owned. He's sitting in his ash heap. He's scraping the boils off his, uh, his body. And his friends are saying, look, Job, Bad things have happened to you, therefore you did something bad. Bad things only happen to bad people because they do bad things. But if you're good, Job, you'll have good things because that's how it works in our, our universe. And, and Job struggled back and forth with them over this. And at one point he says, he points out that it's not always that way. Sometimes the wicked seem to prosper. Job 21, 7 to 9, Job is saying this to his friends, why do the wicked still live? Continue on. Also become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight. And their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. And the rod of God is not on them. Job knew that even the wicked, the wicked often are doing pretty good. Jeremiah asked the same sort of questions as well. In Jeremiah 12, 1-2, he says this to God, Righteous are you, O God, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? 
Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them, and they have also taken root. They grow, and they have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their minds. So Jeremiah asked God, why, why, is the wick, why are the wicked doing so well? Why do they prosper so much? Habakkuk also wrestles with these same issues of God's goodness. In fact, really the whole book, I guess, is, is Habakkuk's struggle with justice and God's goodness. Specifically in Habakkuk 1, verse 13, he says this to God, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And then he asks this, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And so Habakkuk also wrestles with the question of God's righteousness, God's goodness. Is God good? when it seems like the wicked escape from justice. Psalm 37 also is a psalm that deals with the f- struggling with, the maybe not so much struggling, but dealing with this con- the idea here, this, this theme of the goodness of God and, and, the, and the prospering of the wicked. But perhaps one of the most definitive portions of Scripture that deals with this struggle with injustice and God's goodness it's found in the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 73. So if, I, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, and we'll read that psalm together. It is a psalm of Asaph, and it begins here in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I have taken hold, you have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Before we get into the psalm itself, let's just deal with some introductory matters. It's worth pointing out that this psalm is the beginning of book three. The psalms are divided into five books, and uh, this psalm starts off book three. Notice the title. It's, it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph uh, wrote 12 other psalms, Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 83, and also Psalm 50. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to, ni- to ni- 16 to 19, and then also 16, 5 to 7, you'll see that Asaph was appointed as a leader for the a singing in the temple. It was his job to guide the singing in the worship of, of God at the temple. And here he is, of course, a, a leader still struggling with the goodness of God. And that's encouraging to some way, in some ways because we know that it just shows us that all of us do struggle with these things from time to time. And Asaph uses his experience that he went through, this time when he doubted the goodness of God, when he struggled with, with, these, uh, with envy of the wicked, he uses his experience now uh, to teach people, to teach God's people. And this is something people would sing in the, together and they would learn from it. They would learn from Asaph's experience. And Asaph is very honest and he's very raw about what he went through. And really, if you, the theme of this psalm here is the goodness of God. Even how it's structured, you see that the goodness of God is the f- central focus of this psalm. If you look, the, the beginning of the psalm begins, surely God is good to Israel. And notice how it ends, psalm 20, uh, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And those two, the beginning good and the end good, kind of uh, form uh, inclusio. They, they bring the whole psalm together and, and give us this the theme of the psalm, the goodness of God. Because that's where the, the struggle for Asaph really was with the goodness of God. And so that will also guide our outline. And as we kind of divide it up and kind of give us some points to hang our hats on and our minds on here, um, we're going to use the three Shirley's of this psalm to, to organize it. And Shirley number one is found in verse one there says, surely God is good to the Lord. Sorry, to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel. And so that surely uh, goes from verse 1 to verse 12. The conflict over God's goodness. The second surely is found in verse 13. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And that surely goes uh, verse 13 to 17. And the third surely is found in verse 19. Uh, oh, I have eight, uh, 18. Sorry, I have it wrong in my notes. Uh, surely you set them in slippery places. And the repetition of this word surely kind of gives us uh, a division of the psalm. And so we're going to see the conflict over God's goodness, verses 1 to 2, the confusion over God's goodness, verse 13 to 17, and the conviction of God's goodness, verses 19 or verses 18 to 28. 
So first, let's look at the conflict of God's goodness. Before Asaph b- describes his, his past conflict he had with the, the goodness of God, he states with certainty the truth that he learned that God is good to his people. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good. God is good in all he does. God is good in his essence, his being. Uh, they, you could define God's goodness in this like the biblical doctrines does by... Uh, by um, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, says about his goodness that he is the perfect sum, source, and standard of that which is wholesome, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. That is God's goodness. And surely, it truly, certainly God is good. God is good to Israel. And you can see that the second line kind of goes from from Israel to those who are pure in heart. It narrows the focus that God is good to his people. God is good to the pure in heart. What are those who are pure in heart? This is not a a purity that's simply outward or ceremonial. It is a a purity in the inner person. It is somebody who's been uh, forgiven, somebody who's been cleansed by the, the word of God, by the spirit of God. It's someone who has been born again, they are the pure in heart. And if, if you know, uh, Jesus also talks about the pure in heart in Matthew 5, verse 8. Kind of a parallel passage with this, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so Asaph begins with this theological truth that surely it's true. God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. God is good to those who have been redeemed. But, there's a con- but there was a time where he doubted this. And he, in verse 2, he begins, he describes how he almost slipped once. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. But as for me, I, I, I doubted this, Asaph says. I doubted whether God was really good to the pure in heart. He says he was close to stumbling. He almost slipped. The idea there is uh, there was a conflict within him that almost caused him to falter in his in his walk with God. It was a, a spiritual fall in a sense, but almost, not quite. It's kind of like when you are walking on ice and you your feet kind of start to give way and you're about to fall, but you manage to steady yourself and and stand up, and uh, and that's the idea here. He he almost fell, but he manages manages to to God upholds him. God keeps him from falling. And so, what made him doubt the goodness of God so as to almost stumble? And we see that in verse three: For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what made him doubt the goodness of God? Well, it was the prosperity of the wicked, the prosperity uh, of the arrogant. He was envious of them. Asaph saw their prosperity. He saw that they were doing well. He saw that they had health. He saw that they were powerful people, influential people. And that bothered him. He envied that. He felt that that should be his the wealth, the prosperity, the health, all of that should have been his, not the wicked's. 
And so in a sense, he was, he was discontent with how things were. And in a sense, he was also angry with God. He was critical of God. Why would God be so good, in a sense, to the wicked? Why should they have uh, prosperity? What about him? Shouldn't he have the res- He should have the prosperity. He follows God. He trusts God. As we'll see later, he was he he worked hard. He he struggled to to live a godly and holy life. He should be the one to to have this wealth and prosperity and doing well. And so, in a sense, really, it boils down to the fact that he was critical of God for how God sovereignly ordered the things that were going on around him. And we can ask ourselves too: Do we do this? Are you happy? With, are you content with the providence of God in your life? How do you handle when things don't go the way you think God should make things go? Are you discontent? Are you unhappy with what God brings into your life? It's a very similar struggle than, uh, to what Asaph was going through here. But I think there's also something else Asaph was, is thinking of. And I think maybe if you go back in your memory to a year ago, I preached on Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 states that the righteous man shall prosper in all he does. And later on it says, the way of the wicked shall perish. And so maybe Asaph has this psalm in his mind and he's thinking, this isn't how it's going though. This isn't how I'm experiencing it. The wicked are doing well. The wicked seem to be prospering. And and the righteous, myself, I'm not prospering. Is, Is Psalm 1 actually true? Is God really good if, if he says that the wicked shall prosper, but, or sorry, the, the, the righteous shall prosper in all he does, and yet, in reality, all I see is the, the proud evildoers prospering. So, Asaph was led to envy the wicked. This is something scripture often warns us of. Psalm 37 verse 1 says, do not fret because of evildoers. No, be not envious towards wrongdoers. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 21, verse 24, verse 1, Proverbs 3, verse 31, also talk, warn us about envying uh, the, the wicked. And then in verses 4 to 12, Asaph describes to us the prosperity of the wicked as he saw. It's from his own limited observations. It's, it's, it's not an a totally accurate description of how things are. He's only seeing it from the outside. But this is how he perceives it. And he describes what he sees in these verses here. In verse 4, we see they have a comfortable death. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Perhaps these, these wick, wicked uh, people... They have the false peace of a deadened conscience. They, they die comfortably in their own bed, surrounded by their family and their friends. They have much to eat. They have much prosperity. It says their belly is fat, which is to say they have plenty of food. And here's something for us to, to consider that uh, in the Bible, however, uh, in the Bible, fat is a good thing. In our culture, fat is typically not a good thing. Um, we don't usually uh, boast about the fact that we're fat. But uh, in the Bible, to be fat is to be healthy and prosperous. Um, 
if you could think back and and imagine how it was, people back then lived very fragile lives. Um, Many people were farmers and, and war and drought and famine and pestilence meant that their lives were very fragile. It, it wasn't much, and they could be going into a famine where they have nothing. And they, they lived difficult lives. And so fat was important. To, to have fat means things were growing well. Things were prospering. Also, fat is also the best and most flavorable parts of meat. And so fat eventually became a sign of prosperity and wealth. And so for the, the psalmist to say that their body is fat, or later on it says their eyes bulge from fatness, is really to say that they have more than enough food. They're prospering. Their business is doing good. They have, they have so much. That they have an excess because they're fat. Verse 5, where we learn that they don't, these wicked, rich, these rich, wicked people often escape the troubles of ordinary people. There it says, For they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. There's, there's a benefit to being wealthy. You often escape the, the trials and difficulties of people who are poor. They don't live from paycheck to paycheck or from month to month. There's advantages to their wealth. They don't work as hard. They don't labor like other people do. Verse 6 says they talk, that pride is their necklace. Their gar- the garments of violence cover them. They wear their sin proudly and openly. There's a necklace here. The necklace of pride is a necklace would be a kind of a status symbol of honor. They're proud of um, their pride. They are... They wear their sins openly towards other people. The idea here is they're dressed to sin and they're dressed in their sin. Verse 7 goes on to describe their, their eye, eyes bulge from fatness. Their, the imaginations of their heart run riot. Even though they're fat, even though they're prosperous, even though they're doing well, they have an, a lust for more which is in the idea, the word here, imaginations. There's a, a desire, a, a lust for more, and they're running, those lusts just seem to have no end. They're not satisfied with what they have, and so they gain more and more. And verses 8 to 11 tell us about their words. Their words are full of pride, mocking, and wickedness. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. These, their words reveal what's in their heart. They mock others. They threaten others with oppression. They talk like they're gods. Spurgeon says this about them, these people. Their high heads, like tall chimneys, vomit black smoke. In verse 9, you could see their arrogance towards God comes out. They set their mouth against the heavens, and then on the earth their tongue parades the earth. Whether it's towards God or towards others, they are uh, they leave um, a trail of godlike arrogance wherever they go, and they seek to oppress people. And yet, people still follow them. They're still popular people. Verse ten is a is a difficult translation, or verse to translate. 
but most commentators look at it and believe the idea is that people are drawn to the wicked and, and their prosperity. They're a popular group, and, and many want to join this cool group so that they can share in their, their wealth and their benefits. And notice these wicked people, these wicked rich people are not atheists. They haven't utterly forsaken God. In a sense, they're deists. They believe God, is, God exists, but they don't really believe God cares about what goes on in the world. He's not interested in what I do. He won't give, bring me to justice. He's not concerned about my life. You can see that in verse uh, 11 there. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? God doesn't know. God doesn't care. You know, it's, it's interesting how this seems to be such a common belief among the wicked. There's multiple places in the Bible that talk about putting the words, these words in the mouth of wicked people. Uh, one, one good one is uh, Psalm 94. In Psalm 94, just in verse 1 into verse 7 there, it says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the wicked. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt, vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord. They and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. And uh, the psalm goes on to say that that was a foolish thing for them to say. But here, the same idea is, is stated there, that wicked people simply don't believe God's going to, to deal with them in justice. They believe they can do what they want, and they, God will not hold them accountable. And in verse 12, Asaph ends his portrait of the wicked rich people here by summing it all up. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. And as he con- concludes his portrait, he sums it up and says, these people, they're, they're comfortable and they're, and they're increasing ever-increasing in wealth and prosperity. And really the unspoken word there is that as he beholds the wicked in his mind, he's like, this is not good. This is not good that the wicked are at ease. This is not good that they're comfortable. And this is not good that they have so much prosperity. And this injustice in Asaph's mind brought him confusion and trouble. And that's what we'll see in the next verses there. The confusion about God's goodness, verses 13 to 17. So Asaph has has considered the wicked's prosperity, but now he contrasts it with his own situation. Verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent. Remember that Asaph began by stating that the Lord is good to those who are pure in heart. But here Asaph is in confusion about that. He has kept his heart pure. But now it seems like a vain task. He has pursued holiness and godliness. He's tried to mortify sin. He's he's tried to uh, cultivate righteousness in his life. He's worked to maintain a, a pure and clean heart and life. But it seems like an empty enterprise for all his efforts. He's 
All he got from it was trials and difficulties. For you can see verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. It seems that Asaph was going through a long trial, a long season of difficulty in his life. In a sense, he was under the discipline of God, God's training in righteousness. But he's looking at his own situation and seeing him going through. He's working hard to, he's trying to be pure in heart. He's trying to maintain righteousness in his life. And yet all he gets is trials and difficulties. And he's looking at the wicked and, and they're doing so well and comfortable and they, they don't care about God. They're rebellious against God. They oppress other people. And yet they're doing so well. That just, that's not fair. That's not just. God can't be good if things are like that. And really that's his conclusion to this is God must not be good. But that's, but Asaph is not someone who has abandoned the faith. He's struggling with faith. He's doubt, his, there's doubts in his faith, but that doesn't mean he's given up his faith. He, there's still, Asaph still has enough wisdom to know that these confusions he has, these, these troubles he's going through, these are, his conclusions that he's come to are better not uh, to be just spoken to everybody. He doesn't need to share them with everybody. Somehow he knows that he, there's an answer to all this. And uh, before he reaches his full con- that conclusion on this, that he doesn't want to lead others astray. And that you see that in verse 15. And he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And essentially what he, he's saying here is that, you know, if I had told everybody about my, um, pr- my confusion, my, my trouble, my, my doubts to, to all the people that I was met, I would have led them astray. I would have led them to also start doubting God's goodness. I would have made them maybe also f- envious of the wicked. I would have taken my bad ideas, my, my sinful thoughts here, and I would have passed them on to other people. And I wasn't willing to do that. I knew something wasn't right here. I needed to sort it out. But I, so I'm not going to just share it with everybody. So he withheld these, these conf, this confusion from, from other people. And, and you see in this, Asaph showed some wisdom. He also showed that he, he deeply cared about God's people. He didn't want to be unfaithful to his God. He didn't want other people to be unfaithful to, to the Lord as well. And the idea here of being betrayed, um, where it talks about, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, has the idea of um, breaking God's covenant by turning away from the Lord. Spurgeon says this, Rashly ill-considered, hastily formed ideas and opinions are dangerously spoken. And there's some some real wisdom for us to learn in this. In these days of, of social media where you can type quickly where you there you have access to lots of communication tools you don't need to say everything that comes to your mind right away it's wisdom means you can hold your opinions uh, back and think about them and, and mull them over and consider them and not give vent to everything that comes into your head Asaph knew that he knew that just saying everything that was going on in his mind wasn't wise. He didn't want to lead other people astray. And so 
There's also great wisdom for us here too to control what we speak, control what we write, control what we um, say to other people because we don't want to damage people with hastily formed opinions. And so verse 16 reminds us again that Asaph, he struggled with this and he kept it inside. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He wrestled with these doubts and it caused him great inward turmoil and trouble. And these doubts, they stuck with him until the day, one day when he came into the sanctuary of God, until he came into to the temple or the tabernacle. And there in God's house, all was made clear to him. The light dawned on his soul. His doubts, his confusions were erased. His faith was strengthened. His understanding was crystallized. His confusion over God's goodness was cleared up because he saw things from God's perspective. He saw the wicked's final fate. Verse 17, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. And that's the wicked's end. Their fate, their downfall, the way their life ends up. What was it about God's sanctuary that gave Asaph such clarity? And there is different explanations. But in the sanctuary of God, in the temple, in the tabernacle, that was the place where the sacrifices were brought, where the priests worked. That was where they taught the law. That's where the psalms were sung. It was the place of worship, where God's people gathered to to worship God. And whatever it was in that place, it, it helped Asaph. It cleared up his confusion. One of the commentaries says this, It may be that in the sanctuary, with all its aspects and activities, his heart simply was focused on the Lord and he was able to put everything in perspective. And here's a good lesson for us as well on the importance of worship, on the importance of corporate worship each Sunday. It's in worship, worshiping together like this where often our, our doubts and our misunderstandings can be uh, corrected, where our sins can be exposed and removed as we hear God's word and sing praises to him. Worship together, the fellowship, the preaching of God's word, the singing of, the, of our hymns, the praying, all of that often reorients our hearts. It, it dr- brings our heart back into line with with what God, how God looks at life, how God sees things. It gives us a biblical, biblical perspective. You're out in the world every day. You're, you're exposed to all the worldly thinking that goes on. And coming on Sunday, coming to worship God, often can, can correct that, can, can give you again God's perspective on life. And so neglecting the gathering of believers for worship harms us spiritually if we do that. If that's a pattern in our lives, we are then, that will facilitate us going astray. It will cloud our thinking, our perspective. And while meeting together each week improves our spiritual vision, we see things as God sees it, as we worship together. But it's not just for, for corporate worship, I believe. I think also each day, if we begin our day, if we spend our day 
you know, making sure that we have time set apart for our devotions, for reading God's word, for prayer. Again, that sets our heart. It, it brings our heart in line with where God is. It helps us to see things from God's perspective. And it will correct many of our many of these confusions and, and understandings, things that Asaph went through. And so it again reminds us of the importance that we need to to spend our time in worship because it sets our heart uh, right, in the right direction, like a compass. A compass sets you in the right direction, and so worship uh, does the same. And the third section here is the conviction of God's goodness in verses 18 to, to 28. And Asaph has a new perspective. What was it he understood in God's sanctuary that gave him peace in his soul? And we see that Asaph saw life uh, in the big picture. He saw things from God's vantage point. Uh, Before, he was only looking at the here and now, the the temporal, the the momentary existence that he was going through. But as he was in the sanctuary, he saw things from the eternal perspective, from God's perspective, as he now he, so now he looked at the, the same things he was looking at before, the prosperous, wicked, his own situation, but now he saw them through new eyes. He saw them through the proper fo- lens. And that's what we see here. In verses 18 to 20, we see God's goodness in, in, to punish. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to dis- in destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. You know, I remember a preacher telling me, or not telling me, um, I, I remember hearing a preacher and and I, I thought I liked how he said it. One of the most terrifying things in the world is that God is good. And the, real, real, the reason that that should terrify people is because you're not good. And what is a good God going to do with bad people? And that's what we see here. A good God doesn't bear with the sins of the wicked for long. Verse 18 reminds us the wicked lives perilous lives. They're cast in slippery places. And they're, or they're set in slippery places. You're cast them down to destruction. The wicked live perilous lives. Death and destruction are close at hand and, and suddenly they can die and cast, they be cast into terrors. You know, it's interesting because Asaph had said he almost slipped because of the prosper, prosperity of the wicked. But now he realized it is the wicked who are, who are about to slip. They leave very insecure lives. Because God will bring judgment on them without warning. You can see that, verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. It's amazing how life can be so short. Death can come when you least expect it. There was recently a story where, uh, I think it's San Francisco, where a couple was walking down the street. And uh, above them, somebody jumped off their apartment building to they were committing suicide and they landed on top of the couple walking um on the sidewalk 
and the, the, the young lady died that was walking there. Death can happen in a moment. Verse 20 uh, reminds us that they disappear from this earth like a bad dream. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When you dream, there's a, you, it seems like things are real. But when you wake up, all of that's gone instantly. And sometimes you can't even remember what you dreamed about. And that's way, the way it is with the wicked. They're here, but their existence is, is temporary. And soon God will take them from this world and their place will forget them and they will be like, we, we will hardly remember that they even existed before. And so God despises them and he will act for justice in his time. Really, God will effortlessly remove them from this world. Maybe it doesn't seem like that to us, but, for, but in God's mind, uh, the wicked are about to slip and totter because he will bring his judgment on them without warning. This is the wicked. This is his new perspective on the wicked. He sees that it's not, it's not he shouldn't envy the wicked. Look at their, their situation. They're, they're about to face judgment. In a sense, they live their whole lives with a noose around their neck. And all it takes for God to give the word and the bottom falls out of their lives and they plunge into hell. So God is good because God will do what is just. And so for Asaph, this of course helped him. This encouraged him. This, This cleared up his confusion. He saw that it was wrong to envy the wicked because God would bring swift judgment on them. But at the same time, this is a warning to all those who still walk in their sins, who those who have not repented of their sins. Because like Asaph says, you are in a dangerous position. You are walking around with a death sentence over you. And God could take your life at any moment and plunge you forever in an eternity of suffering in hell. You need to realize that if, this is, if you have not repented of your sin, this is your condition. This is where you're going. This is, you are in a perilous place. But you also need to know that this is why Jesus Christ came to this world. Why God the Son became a man and lived a perfect, righteous life. Because he loves to save sinners. That's why he came to the cross and suffered and died. Suffering the wrath of God because of our sins. That's why he rose from the dead. So that you can have salvation. That you can have forgiveness. And so I encourage you. I urge you. I warn you that you have a death sentence over you. But you can escape it through Jesus Christ who can forgive your sins, who can remove the death sentence and can give you the greatest treasure that you could ever imagine as we will look at later in this psalm. And so Asaph sees this is the end of the wicked. Will you envy them now when you consider this? In a sense, to give this illustration, They are like cows that are about to be fattened up for the slaughter. 
And you can imagine, if you will, in your hopefully use your imagination and imagine you have two cows within the same barn and the same different stalls. And the cow, we'll call her Betsy. And then we'll have uh, Morty over here. And uh, the farmer comes in and the farmer always gives more grain to Morty. And, and the poor old Betsy here, she just gets the plain old fare for the day. And you can imagine that cow looking at the, the, across the pen and going, why is that cow get Morty there getting more than me every time? Doesn't the farmer love me? I mean, he always is playing favorites. He's just giving more grain, more food for this one. And me, I just get nothing. I get this boring old stuff every day. And day after day, it goes on, and, the, and Betsy just gets more angry and discontent. And why, why doesn't the farmer love me like he loves this one? He gets all the good stuff. But then one day, the farmer comes, and he takes his halter. He puts it around Morty, brings him outside. He takes his knife, and, well, he gets butchered. That's the end. And the cow understands. Betsy understands. Ah. Oh, Look, Morty was getting that special treatment. He was just getting fattened up for the slaughter. And in a sense, there's, there's a little bit of that in our lives as well, where the wicked, all the goodness of God will only add to their judgment. And we can look at how, like Asaph did, and look and see they're getting so much good, but really it is, is because God loves us that He doesn't always give us the things that, the, that prosperity. And again, knowing the end helps you have a proper perspective now. Even when we think of my illustration there, if the, the Betsy understood the end of Morty, she wouldn't be envious, she wouldn't be discontent, and she wouldn't get angry because of how things. How things were going. And this is part one of Asaph's newfound clarity on life. He realized it's not right to envy the wicked because of where they're going. But he also sees something else, and this is so important. Is not only is it just foolish to envy the wicked and their prosperity, he he sees something that he had he has something even better than the wicked ever did. And we'll see how he realizes this in the next uh, verses going through here. In verses 21 to 24, Asaph realizes God's goodness and covenant love. Now that Asaph understood life from God's perspective, he considers how he behaved during his time of doubts. But he also sees that he shouldn't envy the wicked's prosperity because he has a greater treasure. Verse 21, he says this, Asaph, When my heart was embittered and, embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Asaph looks back now at that time when he was in confusion, when he was doubting God. And uh, he looks at himself and he, he, in a sense, groans over his his previous conduct. His heart was bitter. It was sour towards God. He had pain in his heart. He, he sees now that he was a fool 
In fact, he was like an animal before God. Animals are, are brute beasts. They don't, they don't understand truth about God. They don't understand spiritual things. They're just ignorant creatures of instinct. And Asaph realizes, oh man, I had sunk to the level of beasts. I was so stupid. I was so dumb. How could I think like that? How could I act like that? What a fool I was to do that. And as he thinks about that, he realizes how good God was to him. Because God certainly had reason to to leave Asaph, to wallow in, in his bitterness. But God didn't forsake Asaph, did he? Even while Asaph was struggling, even a, while Asaph was doubting and, and angry with God and bitter with God, God didn't let him go. God held on to him. And God was always with him. And God uh, also guided him and counseled him and taught him the truth. You can see that there in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. And so he considers his own foolishness But then he considers how good God was to him and how God led him, cared for him, guided him, taught him the truth. And not only had had God done, done that in the past, but God will continue to do that. Verse 24, with your counsel, you will guide me. In the future, you will continue to guide me. You will continue to bring me uh, through this life and afterwards receive me to glory. And he understood that his end, uh, he is a glorious end. He, he has God's presence with him, both now and in eternity. God, his whole life, God will be there to take care of him, to provide for him, to teach, teach him, and eventually receive him to himself. And so what he realizes here is the end of the righteous. This is where the righteous life leads to, to glory. And so how could he envy the wicked's prosperity when the pure in heart have the greatest treasure, which is God himself? He has God's presence um, throughout all his life. And verse 25 and 26 are great, a great passage there where Asaph now realizes how good God is. He, he delights in his God. He, he realizes that God's goodness is his supreme desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Asaph here declares to everyone that God is the greatest desire of his soul, the supreme object of his affections. He desires God more than anyone or anything in heaven or on earth. He has his God forever. His body may fail. His heart may fail. He will eventually die. But he will live on forever in the enjoyment of God. And here is just even a hint at the resurrection. The fact that he says that that uh, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph knows that this life is not all there is. There is a resurrection. He will enjoy his God both now and forever. God is the rock of his heart. That's the literal translation there, the strength of my heart. 
God is the rock of his heart, the, the strength of his inner life. God is his portion. God is all that God is. His, the infinity of God's goodness is his to enjoy forever. And in this, he just shows how foolish he was to envy the portion of the wicked when he has the greatest portion, both now and forever. He realizes that all the prosperity of the wicked, all their ease, all their comfort, all the treasures that they own, that's all fool's gold. That's all rubbish. That's all, it's in some sense, it's nothing compared to the, the treasure I have. Because I have God. I have his infinity of goodness. I have his presence forever. I have his, I will share in his glory. I will be with him forever and ever. Everything that the wicked has is, is nothing compared to knowing God. And so how foolish it was for him to envy such a lesser portion when he, had, when he forgot, when he didn't realize that he had the greatest treasure, the presence of the Lord God himself reconciled to him. Others um, real have realized this too. In John 6, verse six, starting in verse 66, it says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Paul, he says this in uh, Philippians 3, verse 7 to um, 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. You see, the Asaph realized that the Lord was his greatest treasure. Peter and the disciples realized that Jesus Christ was indeed their greatest treasure. Paul realized that he would rather have Jesus Christ than anything else in this world. He'd rather lose everything than to, to not have Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you also know that? Do you also value what God has given you in Christ Jesus himself? Would you rather have God than all the treasures of this world? Because this is why you were saved. At least one reason why you were saved was that you could know your creator, that you could delight in living with him in fellowship each day. Do you know that God is your greatest treasure and delight? And he and do you pursue him in his word and walk with him? Asaph knew this, he realized this at the end. You can see how his perspective has has changed. You know, it's interesting that when you look think of it, God didn't tell Asaph all the reasons why the wicked were doing so well. He didn't give him all his reasons for why he was suffering and why the wicked were doing so well and living in prosperity. But Asaph doesn't need that. Asaph realizes the end. He realizes where the wicked are headed. He also realizes what he has now. And he also realizes where he's going. And that's enough. He's trust that God will do things 
that God will be good, that God will be just, that God will be righteous in his own time. And he trusts that. In the last verses, 28 and 20, 27, 28, he concludes the psalm by summing up what he's learned. It says there, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And in this, uh, this conclusion, you hear echoes of Psalm 1 again. Those who are far from you will perish. And the nearness of God is my good. The way of the wicked will perish, as Psalm 1 says. The wicked here are described as far off. They, they are relationally distant from God. They are in, their relationship with God is one of an enemy. And they are described as those who are unfaithful to God. They were adulterous, like an unfaithful wife to her husband. And they will soon perish. They will soon be destroyed. Maybe not right now, Asaph realizes, but soon in God's time. And he, there's another personal contrast here. But as for me, that's not my lot. I'm one of those who are pure in heart. And he, now he says, the nearness of God is my good. And the nearness here points to his relationship with God. God is near to him. God is reconciled to him. God is with him, as we've seen before in the previous verses there. He realizes that God is his highest good. His relationship with God is his greatest treasure. He doubted it before, but now his faith is clear and strong, and he knows that the Lord God, Yahweh, is his refuge. And Asaph also is not content simply to enjoy God's goodness. No, he wants others to taste and see that God is good. He will tell of God's works his power to save, his power to bring destruction on the wicked, his compassion, his mercy, his great deeds of salvation, and his goodness. Spurgeon says this at the end of this psalm here. In the end, he finds all his comfort in his God. He comes to the conclusion that whatever the portion of the ungodly man may be, His is infinitely better because they do not have God and he has God who is his all in all. And to conclude this psalm and kind of wrap it up, I have a copy here, a portion from Steve Lawson's commentary on this psalm. And he says this, much like Asaph, Charles Wesley was a man gifted by God to write spiritual songs. Wesley was a famous 18th century hymn writer who wrote more than 700 hymns, many of which are still sung in Christian worship. His classic works are among the finest in the English language. You may know many of them. Uh, One of them, Hark the Herald, the Angels Sing. Born in England, he was educated at Christ Church College at Oxford University in the 1720s. He helped his brother John shape the Methodist movement. Lying on his deathbed in March 1788, Charles Wesley was fixed upon the greatness of God. His last thoughts were about Psalm 73, specifically verses 25 to 26. 
Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As he reflected on these verses, he he called his wife to his side and, and dictated his last words. And this, uh, true to Charles Wesley's character, his last words were um, a hymn, a verse. It says this, In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? Lawson uh, ends our comments further. This is how to overcome my optic faith. By looking away from the charms of this world and focusing on the glories of Christ. May we look exclusively to the Lord and consider the beauty of His holiness. May all who trust in God take a long look into eternity and consider the end of the ungodly.